We had also just closed, like, right around our YC interview. The Friday before, we signed a multi-million dollar, multi-year deal with Microsoft that basically changed the trajectory of the company. And I had also had a baby the week before our interview. I spent 15 years in open source and infrastructure software now, and that serves GitHub and the mission so well. We can take a really long-term vision. I'm driving a lot of our global expansion into markets like China and India. It's a really exciting time in the company, and seeing the team that Nat and the rest of the leadership team has pulled together, it just made it an opportunity I could not say no to. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm really excited to welcome Erica Brescia to Founder Real Talk. Erica is the COO of GitHub, a role she took fairly recently after GitHub's $7.5 billion acquisition by Microsoft. We'll get to talking about GitHub, but first I'd like to take it back to when I met Erica for the first time a few years ago. Erica built Bitnami with her co-founder, Daniel Lopez, and she served as Bitnami's COO from its founding in 2013 through the successful acquisition by VMware earlier in 2019. So Erica's had a very busy year. She's achieved an incredible amount of success, and we're going to dive into both Bitnami and GitHub here today. Erica, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to start kind of chronologically here. Let's take me back to Bitnami. It's a company that those in the infrastructure software world are very familiar with, but maybe not every listener was familiar with. So maybe give us the elevator pitch. What were you trying to accomplish with Bitnami? Sure. Bitnami automated software packaging and deployment, both on the cloud and on-premise. And we drove, uh, the year prior to our acquisition, 1.2 billion hours of compute usage across all of the major cloud platforms. People might be familiar with the Bitnami application library, which you could find on Azure, AWS, Google, Oracle, VMware, and a lot of other cloud platforms. And we just made it easy for people to deploy prepackaged software or package up their own software for deployment in the cloud. 1.2 billion hours of compute usage. So that, that's meaningful, even to the large cloud players. It must have been kind of an interesting model to be a startup dealing with very, very large companies like the clouds. It did put us in a really interesting position. I mean, we drove a very considerable amount of usage through the marketplaces of all cloud vendors, including Amazon, which obviously has the lion's share of the market, though Azure is falling quickly on its heels, which is exciting now that GitHub's part of Microsoft. So there were some interesting discussions and interesting negotiations along the way, and it also made us an interesting strategic partner for the cloud vendors, which ultimately resulted in the acquisition down the road. Okay, I want to get into that in a (laughs) sec. But first, given that this is Founder Real Talk, I want to talk a little bit about the founding of the company. 
you know, Daniel, your co-founder, how did mm-hmm. you guys meet? When did you decide, hey, let's start a company together? And what was that process like? Sure. So we were introduced by a mutual friend. I actually studied investment finance, thought at one point I would run a hedge fund, but my father was an entrepreneur. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of busy right now, okay. thankfully. But yeah, my father was an entrepreneur and I grew up watching him build his company and I did have this kind of itch. And when I met Daniel through a mutual friend, I had a lot of experience building and running sales teams and on the operational side. And he was an engineer who, you know, was here during the dot-com boom. He moved over to the U.S. in 1998. He was one of the founding members of the Apache Software Foundation. So deeply technical, not a lot of experience in building teams or doing sales. So a friend introduced us, and I actually just started to help him out informally. I was going to be joining another startup that my friend was starting And once I started spending more time with Daniel and understanding his vision, I just couldn't say no. So we first started working together in 2005. It was a long journey on a company called BitRock, which we Mm -hmm. later like turned into Bitnami in 2013. Okay. So it sounds like the success that you guys had as co-founders in some ways was a result of the fact that you're very complementary skill sets. Do you think that's important in a founding team that, that people are complementary and, you know, don't overlap in skills or, you know, what were some of the keys to success for you guys? Yeah, I mean, every founding story is probably different, but in our case, having this differing set of skills and personalities and opinions, you know, Daniel would always joke that I was always the optimistic one and he was always the paranoid one. And it was true, but it it really did help us out as we built the company. You know, I obviously became a lot more technical over time, but I don't have an engineering background and I was running a company in infrastructure software, which is uncommon, I Mm -hmm. think. And I couldn't have done it without a really strong technical founder. And, you know, there are a lot of things that you go through when you're building a company from, you know, building major partnerships to making key hires to building the culture of the team. And I think we balanced each other out really well. And, you know, obviously we were able to achieve a lot together. So uh, it was interesting moving on and not working with him anymore after 15 years together, but we still talk all of the time. I'm sure. I'm texting him daily right now. He has a baby on the way who's overdue. So maybe this week there'll be a new little... Uh, Good for him and his family. That's great news. Yeah, exactly. So you guys went through Y Combinator with Bitnami. Why did you decide to do that? And tell us about the pros and cons of the experience. There's a bit of a funny story behind Y Combinator. So when Daniel and I were first starting BitRock, he was following everything that Paul Graham and the rest of the team was doing. And he said, I think we should apply to this, the very first batch of YC. And at the time, we had like... I don't remember if it was six people on the team or eight people. And I thought, we have paying customers. We're way too big. You know, like, we're a company now. We're not just a couple of people with a pitch deck, which, you know, in retrospect was absolutely ridiculous. But at the time, we just felt like we were too far along for YC. So we did follow kind of the growth of YC. And then it was actually Daniel's wife who started her own company that went through YC before us. And so we saw kind of how that benefited her and her team as she was building out her company And it was really Daniel who drove the decision to apply. I was still a little bit skeptical. We had also just closed, like, 
right around our YC interview, the Friday before, we signed a multi-million dollar, multi-year deal with Microsoft that basically changed the trajectory of the company. And I had also had a baby the week or two weeks before our interview. He was two weeks old when we went to our interview with Y Combinator, which was really challenging because my mom had to come in the car and watch my child. YC at least used to run infamously late. Like, they were two and a half hours late or something with the interviews. So I had a screaming baby in a hot car in the parking lot of YC, and I had to keep going out to feed him. (laughs) New baby, you got to keep him fed. So uh, while we were waiting, and that's probably part of the reason we got in is I just didn't give a shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. Hopefully I am. But I didn't care if we got into YC at that point. I'm like, I just had a baby. We just signed this huge contract that's like a funding round, you know, back when seed funding was still a few million bucks. It was a lot of money. And I was a little less worried and less stressed about actually getting into YC. And I'm sure that gave us the confidence to get through the interview process. To answer the second part of your question about the experience and was it worth it, because of the fact that I had a baby and I lived in Walnut Creek, which for those of you who know the Bay Area is a pretty gnarly commute to Mountain View, I wasn't as involved as Daniel, who he and his wife moved right to Mountain View. He could walk to the office and I, I had to drive there and I didn't get there as much. I think YC is run a little differently now. Back then, there was a lot of impromptu, hey, if you can be here at 11 a.m. tomorrow, we can have this great meeting. And we had customers, too. And I was closing deals. I was doing BD at the time. You know, we were 12 people when we went through YC. And so we had an actual business and revenue and other things that needed to be done. So I couldn't just like pop over uh, (laughs) to Mountain View. I have gotten a tremendous amount of value post the actual program that lasts about three months from the network itself Mm. and also from a hiring perspective, especially given the fact that we had not raised venture capital. It gave us a little bit of extra kind of fairy dust when it came to hiring folks and getting people interested in joining the company when it was still really early days. Uh, I still make time to coach and help other founders prepare for YC interviews. And I think it was one of the best things that happened to the company. I would do it again in a heartbeat if I was going to start another company. And the programs that they have for raising Series A and beyond and kind of their growth series is absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm kind of got this image of you running in and out of the facility there to feed your baby yep. uh, <laughs> in, in between waiting for your interview. That's uh that's a good picture of juggling. Uh, <laughs> if anybody thought starting a company was easy, <laughs> you're dispelling that rumor now. Yeah, don't do it when you have a newborn. Just like <laughs> YC and newborns are not a great combination. Okay. All right. So one of the incredible things about Bitnami, you guys built it over several years, mm-hmm. yet you only raised a million dollars of outside capital. That is truly unique. Now, you talked about the fact that you signed a big deal with Microsoft early on. So obviously, you were able to fund the company from customers. Mm-hmm. What a novel idea. Yeah. But you grew this, grew the company to 100-plus people? Uh, yeah, just, just under 100. Just about, just about 100 people. So you really grew quite a big team without a lot of outside capital. And that's extremely rare, obviously, in, in Silicon Valley. It's, it's rare for any high-growth, tech-focused company these days. What led to that decision? What was the rationale for it? And love to hear about your your thoughts on the pros and cons of doing it that way. Yeah. So it was a decision that we revisited very regularly. And our view was always that we wanted to raise capital when 
the organic growth of the company was going to slow us down in a lot. It was going to cause us to miss an, a market opportunity. That's really how we thought about it. So if we could fund enough growth to do what we needed to do as a business, we didn't want to bring in outside capital. The pros of that approach are that it really does focus you on finding product market fit and finding people that will actually pay you money. And for us, that was the cloud vendors. So it put us in a great negotiating position with them because we could say, look, we're not a VC-backed company. You know, one of my famous lines in putting together these deals was, I have to pay the bills. Like, we have to do this development, and the money has to come from somewhere, and we're driving, you know, tens of millions of dollars on your platform. You're going to have to pay us. And it kind of gave us a bit of a negotiating advantage, I think, over companies that might have 40 million bucks in VC sitting in the bank. The money had to come from somewhere. So it was great from a focus perspective, and it was a very deliberate choice. You know, as the company grew and we went to launch our enterprise offering, we did start thinking about having to bring in outside capital then because all of our early revenue came in through BD. Initially, it was me, and then I built a BD team Mm -hmm. to go out and build and, and drive renewals and expansions of our deals. But it was a really small team of folks, a handful of folks really responsible for all of the revenue at Bitnami. When you have to go start building out a sales team, that's a very different funding effort. And that's about the time we met, or we met mm-hmm. kind of as you were planning Stacksmith, the, the enterprise product. Mm-hmm. And then we continued to chat as you guys were launching, and it was clear you recognized okay, this is now the time we're going to have to scale up to go sell this product, you know, into the enterprise. So that was going to cost more money than maybe the business was producing. Mm -hmm. And so you guys were gearing up maybe to to finally hit the market. I was super excited about that as a VC. And obviously there was a lot of effort that went into this and you guys were very deliberate in thinking through, okay, you know, what do we need and what can we do with with the capital that we raise? Mm -hmm. Around the same time, obviously, uh, unbeknownst to me, (laughs) VMware came calling. And ultimately, you know, you sold the company very successfully to VMware, but I'm sure that there was a lot of deliberation between Daniel, yourself, on whether or not this was the right thing to do. Can you walk us through a little bit of the, the story there and how you guys thought about the pros and cons of either deciding to sell the company or go raise around, which was clearly available to you? Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and it was a really interesting process. I think one of the unique things about Bitnami was the nature of our relationship with the cloud vendors. Mm -hmm. So as you might imagine, we were regularly getting approached about acquisitions. In particular, as cloud vendors were looking at taking larger and larger dependencies on us, you know, it became clear to them that they would probably be better off having us as part of their platform rather than this independent vendor that was driving huge amounts of traffic for them. And we were still small enough that it was something that different companies could absorb. So, you know, I think Daniel and I were always pretty realistic that at some point it would probably make sense to join forces with a cloud vendor or other platform vendor. And the question was really, you know, when is that time going to be right? And as we were looking at taking funding, you know, because we had grown the company to the size it was, and we had so little outside funding, when you started looking at the numbers around, you know, 
raising capital and making a a quite significant bet that we were going to be able to build a successful enterprise business, you know, on top of the foundation that we had built with the business with the cloud vendors, there is a lot of risk in that. And Daniel and I had been working together for a long time. Basically, all of both of our net worth was tied up in the company. You know, when you're bootstrapping, we didn't even take salaries for a long time. So, you know, the math around it was something that we did think about a lot. And the other thing, of course, we thought about a lot was where is the best home for everything we've built? You know, the great Bitnami brand, we had over a million visits a month to our website, over a million deployments a month of Bitnami packaged applications, and an amazing team of people that we cared deeply about. So, there was quite a movement behind Bitnami. So I, th- this is this. W- I mean, VMware got themselves a great deal. Um, I and, think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's an amazing team, and I'm really proud of the team and and the brand that we built and the adoption that we drove. And so, you know, it was something that we thought really long and hard about when it came time to make the decision: Do we go the funding route or do we join forces? And you know, we had long admired VMware. They have a great team there. What was especially interesting about VMware was they're partnered with all the different cloud vendors. And so, you know, had we joined forces with another vendor, it would have meant probably dropping our relationships with the others, which we had worked really very long and hard to build and were excited about the value we were delivering on their platforms. And with VMware, you know, Bitnami is there, the brand is there, the team is there, like everything mm. is still there and Bitnami can continue on its mission of being the best way to deploy software on all of the different platforms instead of just going really deep with, maintaining yeah. Maintaining that like neutrality. Exactly. So it just, you know, at the end of the day ended up making sense. It made sense for me and Daniel personally and, and obviously it was a great place for the team and the technology and everything, the brand and were there some iterations in this process? There usually are with, with acquisitions. So did you involve other members of your team? And if so, when and how? Because I know that that's something oh, yeah. that can backfire on you if you know people kind of take their eye off the ball and get focused on a deal. And these acquisitions rarely end up happening, even when the conversations begin, as you talked about. Oh, yeah. You got approached many times along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so how did you think about who to involve and in what way in the process? It was uh, interesting and a long process. VMware was not the only company involved Mm -hmm. either, so we had multiple conversations happening at the same time. We tried to keep it really, really a tight circle of people that knew what was going on, mostly because of the focus issue. And we wanted people focusing on, you know, shipping Stacksmith and building out the Stacksmith business and customer base and continuing to do a great job at servicing all of our cloud vendors and those relationships. And so... We tried to keep it tight. It is really hard for the founders listening. Sometimes the corp dev teams and other folks are not particularly careful. And we had people snooping on a bunch of LinkedIn profiles and people noticed and then Mm. came to us. And so there were a lot of rumors along the way and things that would come up and then we'd try to squash and then they'd come up again. And and it is a really difficult balance because you don't want to lie <laughs> and you end up having to, you know, choose words carefully and, you know, sometimes tell people, I just can't talk about that yet. It's a difficult balance, I think, for a founder to strike in particular when you have a company that's run a little bit differently like Bitnami. You know, we didn't have a bunch of outside board members right. and things like that. 
that. So it really was Daniel and I. And then over time, we brought in different folks from the executive team and from the engineering team. You know, at the end of the day, getting through a due diligence process, especially on a code base that has been around for a long time. And when there's a lot of open source software that we package, a lot of contracts with very large software companies that have been very carefully negotiated, there's a lot to get through. And it really was a team effort at the end of the day, not the whole team, but, you know, we had a kind of ever broadening group of people that were involved and we just tried to gate it a little bit. So we didn't bring people in until it was pretty clear what was going to happen. I will say, you know, a lot of people think they deal with uncertainty very well. And in reality, they find it very unsettling. And I definitely saw that. It it is an interesting kind of view into the human condition, I think, when you go through something like this, where so many people's careers and livelihoods are at stake. And a lot of people thought, like, they were totally ready for it. And you do spend a reasonable amount of your time just coaching your team on Mm. how to think about things and how to deal with things once they're in the loop. And people who are in the tent, everybody wanted to be under the tent, as they say. And then once they were under the tent, they would think, geez, this sucks. Now I can't (laughs) tell everybody that what's going on. Can I get back out of the tent? Yeah, they want out of the tent. It's true. And, you know, it's another thing. You do some great work on the podcast, and I like the way that people tell a little bit more of the real story. And I think that's an important part of the story to tell. And, you know, I've been talking to founders, as you might imagine, I get approached a lot now for advice when people are going through M&A. And that's one of the things I tell them is just think carefully about the team and how it's going to affect them. Not telling people is often the right thing to do when you have your their best interests at heart so they can just stay focused and not get caught up in the massive amount of work that it takes to get a deal like that done. Well said. <laughs> uh, well, congrats on all that success. I want to I shift the conversation now to GitHub Having gotten the chance to know you over the last couple of years, and anybody listening to this podcast can recognize the amount of energy and enthusiasm and determination you bring to the job, it feels like you're custom-made to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, that you, you, you carry all those attributes with you. And so, obviously, GitHub is an amazing company. When they came calling, though, now, now GitHub being part of Microsoft mm-hmm. is a bigger company. Yep. How did you think about the trade-offs between maybe starting something new Uh, You've obviously done a lot of that and been very successful versus coming to a bigger company. You know, I don't know that there are many jobs that I would have taken, maybe no other jobs (laughs) other than this one. Uh, GitHub just felt like coming home to me in a really weird way. I'm sure it sounds extra weird given the fact that I'm not actually a developer, but I met the founders of GitHub back when they were first starting the company in 2008. Actually, Daniel and I had a a booth next to them at a conference, which is humbling when I think about it, given the scale that GitHub has reached. But I have long loved GitHub, the company, the mission, the brand, and I've just been in awe about the love that GitHub has been able to generate in the market and from its employees. And this mission of becoming the home for all developers is just something that really resonates with me. I've spent 15 years in open source and infrastructure software now, and that's like serves GitHub and the mission so well. And I'm also, you know, on the board of the Linux Foundation. So, you know, I've been following GitHub and a lot of its efforts through that. And my husband even did a brief stint working here. So I had some Keeping insight. Keeping it in the family. Yeah, I know. I had some uh, insight in the culture, some very good friends. Friends of mine were on the executive team. And when Nat came to talk to me about it, it's funny. I was talking to my husband like, 
I was going to write this blog post about my decision. I was going to talk about how it took me, you know, a long time, and I thought long and hard about this decision. And I did think long and hard, but he called me out and said, you know what, you knew the second Nat brought this up that you were going to take that job. And that's why I love my husband. He keeps me honest. And he was right. Like, I knew instantly. I still made myself think about it and think about the implications of joining a larger company and one I didn't start, more importantly, than even the size. But I am a very gut-driven person. It served me extremely well throughout my career, and it just really— felt right. I had some concerns initially because the scale is is much different, but I actually feel really comfortable here and and feel like I can deliver a lot more value to the company because I've got enough resources and, and the team to be able to make things happen and to plan for the really, really long term, which is something that's really hard to do when you're running a bootstrap startup, right? right? It's right. A, You have to make your numbers every quarter. You might have to lay people off, which thankfully never happened to Bitnami. But here, you know, we can take a really long-term vision. I'm driving a lot of our global expansion into markets like China and India. It's a really exciting time in the company. And seeing the team that Nat and and the rest of the leadership team has pulled together, it just made it an opportunity I I could not say no to. It really didn't even feel like there was an option. It was like, I have to do this. And I have absolutely zero regrets so far. So one of the things that we at GGV have been investing against, a theme we've been investing against, uh, a, a meme we've been talking about on the podcast as well is, how every company in the world is becoming a software company. And in that new world, if every company is a software company, then developers become more and more important in the world. And so you mentioned GitHub's mission to be the home for all developers. Last I read, the company serves 40 million developers. Yes. It must be a pretty crazy like thing to think about the impact you can have on really all companies, but certainly software as it sort of eats the entire world. Can you tell us a bit about GitHub? I mean, I, it sounds like your husband <laughs> identified that you were really excited about this place. Yep. Maybe tell us why. Yeah, I, there's so many reasons. I mean, I, I keep going back to the people and culture, which is incredible. But when you take a step back and look at the mission, you know, I was writing a job description. I'm hiring a VP of BD and a VP of support. So I'll put that plug in there. Oh, if anyone's listening, right. uh, it's an amazing place. And we I've got some we amazing— We won't charge a commission. There you, you go. <laughs> but I was writing this job description and, you know, the words like historically significant came up. And— It is really a historically significant company. How many times do you get to work at a company that is really changing the world and changing history? And, you know, there is this opportunity to be the home for all developers and drive all this development driven by companies. But there's also just the open source movement. And what's particularly inspiring to me is this next generation and next wave of of humanity that's getting access to the internet. And And the opportunity that GitHub can bring to these people in developing countries who are just getting access to the internet, all of a sudden, if they get on GitHub, they're connected into the global development world, into the global open source world, and into the global economy. And I just think that's incredibly powerful. Mm. And, you know, you look at the mission, we just want to keep making it easier to build amazing things for developers everywhere, developing everything must be very exciting, also a little scary for other software companies that are building tools for developers. Can you talk a little bit about where you go from, you know, from source code control to other areas? I know that uh, CICD is an area that you're getting into. Curious how you see 
to the extent you can talk about it, sure. what, what the, the roadmap looks like for GitHub and how you continue to serve developers. Yeah, so one of the uh, orgs that rolls up to me is business development, and we're really reinventing BD at GitHub. It was actually only two people when I joined, and we're at wow. seven now and and growing. And, you know, as part of that process, we've kind of redefined BD and what what is the North Star for GitHub. And the North Star is really to build an ecosystem that generates more revenue than the platform itself. It's this famous Bill Gates line article from Stratechery, for those of you familiar with it. It's it's a great read. And we're really focused on that. So everything that we're doing in BD and across product and other teams is focused on how we can continue to deliver on what our customers are asking for. CICD is certainly one of those things and still provide an open ecosystem. You mentioned a great example with CICD. We did just make a huge announcement last week for Actions V2, which is a workflow engine Mm -hmm. uh, on top of GitHub and a major new component of that is a fully fledged CICD platform, which is really exciting and in direct response to what our customers are asking for. I will tell you the first three meetings that I took out outside of GitHub when I took this job were with three major CICD providers to tell them what was coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're really trying to do this right, which is hard. The surface area of our product is going to continue to expand, but we are still fully committed to delivering first-class integrations with companies who may have, you know, competing solutions to ours. It's not just important from an ecosystem perspective, but it's important from a customer and market perspective, you know. You look at Circle and Travis and cloud bees and they're used by a lot of our customers yep. and you know even if we weren't just trying to do the right thing which we are the business needs would necessitate that we keep those folks as first class citizens so you know, we are in uncharted waters. I know for a long time, GitHub was so focused on, you know, just the source code collaboration piece of it, and we're expanding, but we're trying to be really open about that and having a lot of customer and partner conversations about how we can continue to, you know, be a great open ecosystem and partner well with with vendors where we might have some competition as well. Well, it's clear from listening to you that you have your fingers in kind of a lot of what GitHub must be up to. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to ask you the question, you know, your your title here, COO, your mm-hmm. title at Bitnami was COO. Yep. Did the jobs resemble each other at all? Did you learn things at Bitnami that kind of prepared you for this role? How different are they or where do you find similarities? Great question. And they are different. And, you know, the COO role in general is one of those roles that's very different across different companies, even regardless of scale. There's a great HBS article that talks about the different types of COO. And during the interview process, I actually sent it over to some of the folks that I was talking to. And I was asking, like, what type of COO do you need? Um, Nat is incredibly charismatic, very deep in the product and with customers, uh, very outward facing. And I think, you know, he and the rest of the team were looking for a partner who could help bring organizational maturity to the company and also just come in and take on things that needed some TLC and some some executive level focus. And that's really what I'm doing here. I have um, support, BD, and workplace experience rolling up to me currently a workplace experience owns all of our physical offices as well as our co-working spaces and our remote work experience. We have a really large 
percentage of the team that is remote here at GitHub, which is awesome. And we want to make sure they have as great of an experience as, as folks working out of an office. But those are kind of unrelated organizations yeah. if you look at it. It's not the COO org. They're separate orgs that all needed some executive focus, love, and attention. And so, you know, I've taken those on and I'm working with the teams there to bring in great leadership and help those teams mature operationally and continue to grow. But I'm also driving things like our global expansion, as I mentioned, and our China strategy in particular, which is incredibly exciting. So the role is very different than at Bitnami. You know, at Bitnami, I really had my hands in everything, even, you know, product and engineering and how we ran those teams and support and everything else. Very, very deep in BD there and sales as well. Here, you know, we do have the benefit of having an incredible executive team in place where we have people who are, you know, deep subject matter experts in specific things and can kind of drive those. So it's given me an opportunity to focus on the specific orgs and problems and bring some of the entrepreneurial experience and spirit and and ability to roll up my sleeves into GitHub and work with these organizations, get them set up for success, and then, you know, I'll turn my focus to other things. So I expect the role to morph quite a bit over time. Another thing, obviously, is GitHub is scaling quite a bit. And we've got broad ambitions from a, a product roadmap perspective, as we talked about before, but just global expansion and everything else. And, you know, longer term, I'm going to be very focused on just preparing us to scale effectively and, you know, looking at our internal processes and how things need to evolve and how to avoid ending up with the situation that some companies have when you when you scale quickly, which is like a lot of internal silos. So I'm really focused on cross-company collaboration and communication and things like that. You know, I'll go back to my previous comment. I was a little bit worried because the scale is so different, but that really hasn't been an issue at all. I was expecting it to be, and, and it hasn't. You learn so much as an entrepreneur about what works from an organizational structure perspective, and really, it all comes down to humans, no matter what size of the company you're working with. And, you know, you learn a lot about leading and managing humans, and that still translates in any size of company. So the transition has been great, and I will say it's a huge credit to the folks here at GitHub who were able to get me ramped up and help me be effective so quickly. I wasn't expecting that either. And it's a testament to how open and collaborative and supportive people are that, you know, I feel like I'm in a good place only two months into the job. Great. Well, as if you weren't busy enough with your day job, uh, you also have a bunch of other side projects. I wanted to ask you about X Factor. Can you tell us a little bit about X Factor? It's a a small fund that yeah. invests in primarily female entrepreneurs, I believe. Only female. Oh, only female. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell us about it, why you're doing it, what it means to you, and, and why you think it's important. Absolutely. So X Factor is a seed fund, and what's really interesting about it is all of the investment partners are female founders who have built and scaled their own companies, and we only invest in companies with at least one female founder. Obviously, I think in a hot topic and a very important cause, I think I felt really a duty above anything else to help support the next wave of female founders. There have been plenty of studies done about how hard it can be for women to raise venture capital, and in particular at the seed stage mm -hmm. where they need the most support. And so 
that's where we decided to focus at X Factor. The first fund was about $3 million, and we were making about 30 investments, rating 100K checks, often the first money into a company, and across a very wide range of sectors. It's another cool thing about X Factor. We now have a second fund that I think there's 22 partners now across such a broad range of backgrounds and experiences. And so we invest in everything from like consumer and fintech to B2B lending to health and wellness to we funded a company that has building a space tug to tug satellites into the proper orbit in Very space. Cool. Yeah. So it's incredible from a learning perspective for me. And I just think it's a really important function in the market. Like as women in technology who have been able to um, build and, and scale companies, we've learned a lot and gotten a lot of battle scars along the way. And, you know, I do think it's our duty to kind of support the next wave of female founders. Beyond that, it's just an amazing financial opportunity. You know, because we have this unique ability to attract amazing women because of our own backgrounds, we get deal flow that's probably unparalleled unless you look at some of the other amazing, you know, female funds doing investments. And we get to see a lot of interesting things. And, you know, it's still early in the second fund. It was just announced. Um, that's eight and a half million bucks uh, around that. But if you look at the performance of the first fund, we're doing exceptionally well. So, you know, there's there's still the capitalist in me that's excited about the financial opportunity, but there's obviously a lot more to it than just that. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing. So this has been an awesome conversation. We're at the point now where we're going to do some rapid fire questions. So you're in the hot seat. I'm going to ask you a couple of things. Just say the first thing that pops your mind. Okay. Tell us about a book you've read that you recommend to founders. The hard thing about hard things. Oh, yeah. I know everybody recommends it. And I've said it before. I will be honest, I don't get as much time to read as I should. (laughs) So I'm sure there are a lot of other great books out there. But that one is the one where... You know, when things get really tough and, you know, that certainly happens sometimes at Bitnami, just understanding, you know, what they went through and and taking some of the nuggets of wisdom out there out of that book, I think um, it's really grounding as an entrepreneur. And I just like it, it's an absolute must read. Zero to one is really, really good, too, if I was going to sneak in another recommendation. Okay. All there. right. You got the second one. <laughs> Okay, second question. Best piece of advice you've ever gotten that you give to other founders as well, maybe X-Factor founders or or others? Trust your gut. I mentioned this before, but I think especially in the early days, I had a lot of imposter syndrome and assumed everybody else knew better than me, especially because I didn't study engineering and I went to USC. I didn't go to like a major tech school. I didn't really have a big Silicon Valley network. And so... I tended to just think everybody else knew a lot better. And it's really important to learn from others, but it's really as important to trust your gut. And in particular, in hiring situations as a startup founder, when you're hiring executives, there's a lot of people with really impressive backgrounds that might not be a good fit for you for whatever reason. And, you know, we definitely, as I think all founders do, if they tell you they haven't, I think they're lying. Like everybody makes hiring mistakes. And we certainly did along the way. And, you know, when I reflect back, it was always because we didn't listen to our gut. Mm-hmm. And we were impressed by like a title or a CV instead of what felt right. Every time I've had a great gut feeling about someone, they've worked out to be a fantastic hire. So just trust your gut, no matter how much experience you have, it very, very rarely will fail you. That's a great lesson. Okay. Last question. A founder who inspires you? 
I have to say there are a lot of them right now. Um, Michelle Zaitlin from Cloudflare, I think she's built an incredible business, and they stay really true to their values and principles over there, Mm. and I just have a huge amount of respect for her and what she's built. I've also met a bunch of Cloudflare folks, and I've never met a single one that wasn't impressive. So she's built an amazing team, amazing business. It's, again, having a, a really material impact on the internet and how we all experience it and the cost of running sites on the internet, and I think it's remarkable. Erica, thank you so much for your time. This has really been great. I know people are going to love listening and wishing you all the best at GitHub. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. 